Hello and welcome to the Potential Psychology Podcast. I'm your host, Ellen Jackson, and it's my mission to share the science of human behaviour in a practical, fun and inspiring way. In each podcast episode, I interview an expert from the fields of psychology, well-being, leadership, parenting or high performance. I pick their brain to uncover what they know about living well, what tips do they have for you and I, and I quiz them about how they apply their expertise in their own life. Join me as we discover simple, science-backed ways to live, learn, flourish, and fulfil your potential. Hello, welcome to the Potential Psychology Podcast. I am the host around here. If we haven't met before, hi, I'm Ellen. I am a workplace psychologist, a mum, an occasional writer, although I must admit those occasions seem few and far between right now. And I'm also a podcaster. And I can say that now because I've been doing this for a year and it still feels weird. I'm not sure I've fully absorbed podcaster into my identity yet. Although the stats suggest that keeping a show on the air and continuing to produce new content beyond the first 12 months is really not that common, which was interesting. In fact, I discovered recently that continuing to produce content beyond about nine episodes is unusual. And there's some estimates that suggest that more than 80% of all podcasts have not published new episodes in the past three months, and close to 70% have been inactive for a whole year. So there's even a name for this. It's called Pod Fade. Why am I talking about it? It's not to blow my own trumpet, although I am pretty proud of the fact that the team and I have kept this going and we're still going strong after 12 months. I'm actually talking about it because I've been thinking about the benefits of perspective taking. Now, in psychology, perspective taking is defined as perceiving a situation or understanding a concept from an alternative point of view. And sometimes that might be another person's point of view, so thinking about how someone else might view a situation. But often we can adjust our perspective or see a situation differently and in a more helpful way just by allowing new input in. So I might grapple with feeling like growth of the podcast is slow or not knowing whether I'm doing it right as a newbie, the kind of things that I know from my peers who have started out the last 12 months are very common thoughts and experiences. But when I read that only a small percentage of podcasts make it past their first nine episodes and even fewer last beyond a year, that changes my perspective. And in turn, that changes the way that I feel. So instead of feeling like I'm floundering or struggling, although I still have those moments, I'm able to feel like I'm succeeding. And all that's changed is not the situation, but just the way that I think about the situation, the way I view it. So my perspective has changed. And I had a similar experience when I read today's guest's memoir. Reading her story, which we'll share with you in a moment, prompted me to ask questions like, how would I cope if I was in her situation? What would I do if I received the diagnoses that she received? How would my life be different? And would I still be worried about the same things as worry me today? And so reading her story, having that input into the system that is my mind, helped me. And it continues to help me some weeks later to really drag myself out of some of the daily worries and anxieties and to think differently about some of the things that cause me stress. So reading her story and the way that she's not only coped but thrived and continues to thrive and flourish has really given me a fresh and helpful perspective. So let's listen in, shall we? And perhaps you might like to let me know how hearing her story maybe changes your perspective. My guest today once specialised in psycho-oncology, which is the human side of cancer. And in 2010, at the age of 37, she received the terrifying news that she had not one but two primary breast cancers. This became, for her, a frightening opportunity to practice what she preaches. So the practitioner became the patient. 
Dr Jodie Fleming has recounted her story in a touching memoir, A Hole in My Genes, which is G-E-N-E-S because we're an audio medium here, so we need to explain it's not the genes you wear, but G-E-N-E-S, published last month. And she's here to talk to us about the book, her story, and what she's learned about living with a cancer diagnosis as both a psychologist and a survivor. Welcome, Jodie. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Ellen. <laughs> I have just finished your book. I've been fully immersed in it over the last few days. And it is, a, I, I call it a touching memoir because it really is. I cried. I'll put my hand oh, up and sorry. say I cried. <laughs> um, but it wasn't sad. You know, there's nothing sad in this story. It's, it's harrowing at times. I've had many a moment over the last couple of days where I've gone, I have no idea how she coped, <laughs> but I'm going to ask you about that. But you've written it in such a lovely, light, almost, I don't want to say humorous way. It's not humorous, but it's light. You know, it's engaging. It, it's storytelling and, um, and it's really beautifully written. Well, there's some of my favourite compliments, actually. I love that you didn't find it sad. I love that it moves people, um, but I'm I'm one of those people that it would absolutely terrify me to think that anybody would feel pity for me for anything that's happened in my life. And so the fact that somebody can read my story and not feel sorry for me, not read it as this woe is me tale is sort of the biggest compliment I can receive because I certainly don't feel that way about myself or no, the story. No. And that absolutely came through for me. You know, this wasn't, at, at no point did, I mean, I, I sort of felt sorry for you only because it was like, how many more things can this poor woman take in moments? But, yeah. the, but the story itself is, is a, you know, it's amazing. I was amazed. I was amazed at, at you, but your resilience and really the strength of the human spirit, I think, is, is, is probably a big part of the theme and lots of other things that I'm going to ask you about in a moment. So, For sure. Thanks. But before I do, so where did you start your career in psychology? Let's get a bit of this background as a professional out of the way before we get into the story part. Okay. Well, I, I'm not sure. It's a little bit of a, a long tail in that it, it stretched over probably 10 years I remember being at high school asking myself, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? Am I going to university? What will I study? And <laughs> this sounds very pathetic, but I was watching a movie, I reckon in about year 10 or 11, and it was Tin Cup, um, I think a Kevin Costner film, and it had Renee Russo as a, a clinical psychologist in that film. He was a golfer. Um, he ended up engaging her services and she was sitting in her desk at her desk sorry looking stunning wearing a set of pearls and I thought to myself after watching that movie oh maybe I'll be a psychologist that looks pretty good but by the time I got to year 12 I narrowed down that I knew I, I wanted to work in a career where I had a sense of reward every day after every day where I got to work with different people every day because I thought sitting in an office seeing the same old people every day would just drive me batty. But anyway, that led to the whole um, psychology path. And then I was a very naughty girl in year 12 and I had a lot of fun with my friends and boyfriends and didn't really study. So I didn't get into the course that I wanted to get into. And I went on to do a few other different kinds of things. Myotherapy was the first thing. So that was a three-year course in Melbourne. And one of our placements was at Fairfield, I think it was a rehabilitation hospital, and we went in to essentially massage some of the patients in there. And one of the wards um, was full of people still living in iron lungs. Like this is in the early 90s. Yeah. And their poor bodies were just so stiff and sore. And so we tried to warm up their little muscles and give them some sort of reprieve, I guess, from how it must have felt to lie like that all day. But there, was an, there were two other big departments in that hospital. And one was the cancer department and one was dedicated to HIV AIDS and at that point that idea of working in the field of cancer really um, the seed was planted and it, it was something that struck me as something very meaningful to do with my life so I went on for the next I think it was maybe 10 years 
doing all sorts of other things, including living overseas. And while I was living in Spain, I decided I might start studying by distance and, and discovered that I could get into psychology as a mature age student. Um, and so started my undergrad while I was living overseas, always, always with the intention of getting into psycho-oncology. So every essay that I chose to write had that theme. Um, my thesis in for my honours and master's or doctorate finally all had that theme around psycho-oncology and I was just pretty well hell-bent on doing that. So that's what came to pass initially. Mm. So what do you think it was that really drew you to the field of oncology and cancer because you know for most people I can imagine would that that would be quite a scary thing you know there'd be a lot of resistance to exploring that and yet there was obviously something there that drew you in a way that you did pursue it through all of those you know research areas and and studies yeah Yeah. well I think you know so back then even like in the 90s Um, probably receiving a cancer diagnosis was the equivalent of a a death sentence, which isn't the case now. Um, But I think it was that sense of reward that I was chasing. And so if we're going to help other people at difficult stages of their life, I think my reasoning was, well, what greater challenge than facing death, facing your mortality? So I think I I sort of thought maybe I would get my biggest bang for my buck, you know, diving into the hard stuff. And those real raw human experiences and vulnerabilities have always been of interest to me. So it sort of made sense from that perspective that I'd choose cancer. Mm. Interestingly enough, turns out I was just doing research. (laughs) (laughs) Which leads me to my next question, because your first or your next, I suppose, exposure from from a different perspective to the cancer journey, if we want to use that phrase, your former husband was diagnosed with cancer and you supported him through that particular Mm, challenge or, you know, battle. There's so many kind of cliches that come to mind when we're having this conversation, but what did you learn from that as a, as a psychologist who already had some exposure and experience with helping people? Well, I hadn't quite yet. When he and I, so he and I went to high school together. He was one of my friendship um, circle, but we hadn't seen each other for 13 years. And so when we met the second time, I was probably doing fourth year, I think. And um, he had come home from New South Wales he just had his diagnosis and initial surgery and we met again and that's when the sparks flew and the relationship started. So I'd already started this path and I almost, I didn't really, but, you know, saw this as, wow, look at this awesome opportunity to get an almost first-hand experience. Well, definitely first-hand experience as somebody's um, support person or carer while he was going through quite horrendous um, chemotherapy and Mm. and more surgeries and things for testicular cancer. And I think at that time it just added to my, it filled my fire in my my belly that um, this was really what I wanted to do. And and I guess it exposed me to the emotional rollercoaster that comes along with receiving such a diagnosis and all of the survivorship issues um, that came afterward as well. So it was sort of happening hand in hand as I was heading into my my doctorate training and, yeah, it gave me really great insight but still not as much as I would have thought. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but that was to come, obviously. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, interesting that it kind of confirmed your career choice perhaps, yeah. Yeah. gave you that little bit of extra insight. But then, of course, what happened next? Yeah, well, so he, it was eight years after his cancer diagnosis that I received mine. But in the meantime, um, I'd finished my my studies and had started working at a children's cancer hospital and sort of specialising in that area in private practice. So I'd met quite a few um, young women in private practice uh, who were diagnosed with breast cancer that led to a bit of hypervigilance in myself, going to the doctor fairly frequently, finding lumps and bumps, only to obviously be told, you know, you're too young, there's no family history. My GP was kind enough to send me once every six months for an ultrasound just for peace of mind. But that ultimately ended up being just so anxiety provoking and it 
always ended up being, you know, nothing or assist mm. or something like that, that um, I stopped checking for a couple of years um, until one random day when I did find another lump accidentally and was going to the doctor um, with a broken foot and um, just sort of casually at the end of that consult said, oh, would you mind just having a little feel of this lump? And then that started that ball rolling that, and that lump ended up being my first um, breast cancer diagnosis. Mm. And that, it, that anxiety is, I mean, I think it's probably an anxiety that we all feel at some level, you know, because we, we know of the need to be aware, to check, we mm. get these messages, you know, breast cancer is one of the more commonly discussed perhaps forms of cancer one of the more prevalent forms of cancer for women we have you know cricket pitches covered in pink there's there's a lot of education and awareness but that does increase our anxiety levels and I have to admit that even while I was reading your book I was starting to feel anxious about myself when did I last check should I be checking you know I've had scares in the past you know do I need to go back and all of that is is constantly there so I can only imagine that, yeah, with what drove that vigilance for you or that hypervigilance and then. Yeah, and, and these women who are my age and, and it's happening to them. And, and so, yes, it was um, a very real possibility and in my face a little bit more. And, and you know, you, you would know yourself working in psychology. We get a bit of a skewed perception, I think, about, you know, how often things are happening for people because of who we're talking to and the stories we're hearing. So that. That certainly distorted mine, my perception. Um, mm. But then maybe that was a good thing because ultimately I would probably not have been checking and therefore not following up and, and early intervention saves lives. But yeah. that death anxiety is, uh, you know, I, I've read a lot about that um, since and I think a lot about that and I see that in the majority of my clients and most anxieties can relate indirectly back to a death anxiety. So it makes sense. But even going through my own experience and and the people in my inner circle that were so confronted by that close degree of separation, me getting cancer, um, so much so that that ended friendships in some cases because they couldn't deal with how confronting that was. It's a really interesting phenomena, I think. Yeah, fascinating. even the term death anxiety, you know, that is confronting in itself, isn't it? And I just throw that out there, death anxiety. I don't, I don't think it was really a term. I mean, I, I completely understand, well, I probably don't completely understand in any intricate way, certainly not from a psychological point of view, but, you know, reading that phrase in your book about death anxiety, it's like, well, okay, yeah, we're all a bit afraid of death, but how much that drives how we behave in life. Yeah. Well, if you've ever read any of, I think it's Irvin Yalom's Um, work on death anxiety it's just fascinating and to listen to him talk about it and relate it back to you know our very survival and our you know that primal need for survival and fight and flight and all of those things like it's it's really quite fascinating and once you've had a little bit of a read about that you start to see it everywhere you can make those connections and I think well you know you said for you that that actually did end friendships because people found that level of anxiety that that immediate confrontation I guess by of death and and their own mortality and the mortality of the people around them you know you and I can say oh it's so fascinating it's so interesting (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know and and do all the reading but obviously for some people it is it is beyond their immediate capacity to cope absolutely yeah yeah and we all cope differently and you said at the beginning about reading my book and it, it's not a sad, um, necessarily heavy read. Um, but that, you know, I, I just count myself lucky as someone who can adapt to adversity and, you know, use approach coping. Fine, I didn't cope well all the time. Obviously, there were ups and downs in my coping. And I did a at the book launch, we had this wonderful um, event where my oncologist agreed to sit on a couch with me at the front of a massive theatre full of 500 plus people. And um, we sort of did a, you can't ask that kind of interview with one another. And in that, she told me how she didn't think I coped at all. 
Oh, and really? you should have my surprise. What do you mean you don't think I coach? You know, I'm a psychologist. Of course I cope well. And of course I didn't cope well and I couldn't be my own psychologist. And I think the thing I did well was I was able to reflect on it and, and grow from it quite well after I was stopped being the deer in the headlights, but possibly not during Mm. No. <laughs> mm. Well, it is one of those questions, you know, we, I suppose questions that we often ask ourselves, or I know I ask myself on occasion, is, you know, if something really critical, serious, traumatic, whatever it might be, happened to me, how would I cope? You know, we like to think that we know how we cope. We don't know. <laughs> but no, we don't know, do we? No. Yeah, exactly. In a positive way and perhaps sometimes in a not-so-positive way, you know, I can imagine... Oh. Totally, yeah. I, I mean, I learned a lot about myself and my level of resilience and um, it's something that I continue to try to tap into now in everyday life, you know, like nine years down the track. More often than not, when something difficult happens, I'll compare it to chemotherapy. Okay, you did chemotherapy. I think you can handle this, radio, And so I do the thing that I don't want to do or how else do we know? I don't know. No, no, and that is, I suppose, I'm going to ask you shortly about resilience, but I suppose that is part of the test of resilience, isn't it, that it's only when we're actually confronted with these situations that we can learn and discover, you know, mm. what, what we're made of and yeah, what we absolutely. can. I, do, yep. I, I did find it interesting or just, you know, alluding to that point you made about, you know, not knowing what or being able to reflect on chemotherapy as a challenge and then use that as a perspective I suppose for facing other challenges because I know you talk about at the end of your treatment doing some personal training <laughs> at a gym and going along and feeling you know still unwell lacking in energy not looking like you want to look not looking like you think somebody who goes to the gym should look like um, but then <laughs> using that reframing technique of you know I've got through chemo then I can get yeah. through a personal training session. Yeah, absolutely. And it has gotten me, it's gotten me out of bed. It's gotten me running. It's gotten me swimming in the ocean. It's gotten, gotten me facing a lot of things um, that I probably wouldn't have had I not have had this experience. Mm. Um, and so I'm one of those annoying people that really sees that the whole cancer experience is a real gift for me. And I remember, and I talk about in the book, well, the first client I ever had who was diagnosed with breast cancer um, and she said to me, she only lived 10 months after her diagnosis and she said to me at the end, I saw her probably two days before she died and she said at that appointment, I would rather have lived my life the way I have for the last 10 months than have lived until I was 80 living the way I had before and these are the people that really taught me how to get through this and, and I completely concur with her perspective on that and that's certainly how I feel about the way I live life now. It's been to how I ever would have planned it going but at the same time I can take sort of the riches and the, the benefits of that even though it didn't work out the way I thought it would. So let's backtrack a little bit. And we'll fill in some of the gaps in the story without giving out too much away because I want people to read the book. It is amazing. You were diagnosed with two different forms of breast cancer, one in each breast at approximately the same time. Is that right? Yes, yes. So I had the initial surgery and while I was waiting for the follow-up appointment with the surgeon, um, I had found another lump in the right breast. The first one was in the left Um and so when I went to the follow-up appointment, I said, I've found another lump on this side. And he, of course, said, look, it's very normal that you're going to be hypervigilant given what you've just been through, but let's send you for an ultrasound and have that checked out. And I went for the ultrasound and, of course, well, the thing that I had felt was nothing, um, but they found something deeper in the breast that then ultimately ended up being another primary breast cancer, very different and unrelated to the first, but a real indicator that it was likely um, that I carried one of the BRCA, uh, the breast cancer mutations, genes, um, mutated genes. So being a young woman, having two primary breast cancers within such a short 
space of time um, was a real indicator that that was pro- there was a genetic link. Mm. So that led us down that path as well, just to add some, you know, I don't know, <laughs> because it wasn't chaotic enough. <laughs> And that, I think, was what struck me, you know, at, at that point in the book where I think you're going through, you did six rounds of very intensive chemotherapy. So you're going through that process. You've got not one but two forms of cancer already identified. Then you're in limbo for a while because there's concerns about it maybe having spread to your liver. And so you've had to have assess, you know, tests and, and ultrasounds and things and wait for results. Waiting. The waiting game is the worst thing. Yeah. That's so awful, that time in between. And and they're not allowed to tell you, they're not allowed to indicate to you whether it's good, bad or otherwise. And it's just excruciating because, of course, the minute you get diagnosed with cancer in the first place, you assume you're going to die. Mm. And then any other sign that something's not right, you just assume this is it. Because mm. I knew all too well by that stage, by the time the liver stuff happened, that if it had spread, there was no cure for that. Yeah. The second breast cancer was what they call triple negative. So it didn't have any hormone receptors that um, were related to it, which meant you couldn't have follow-up um, hormone therapy, not hormone replacement therapy, but mm. a couple of extra tablets you can take afterwards if there's an estrogen or progesterone receptor um, attached to your cancer. So one of mine was estrogen receptor positive, but the other one was triple negative. So um, that one is usually particularly aggressive and there's nothing else you can do. And mm-hmm. if that's going to recur, it usually happens quite quickly okay. um, in a couple of years. So, um, there, yeah, there was a lot to think about and a lot to be fearful of. And, and that fear of death and fear of recurrence is really common uh, and really intense early on. But with time, that obviously gets better, which is really good news. <laughs> yeah, and, and this is, you know, I, I really felt that I, I had a sense of kind of this battle that you were having between trying to use your cognitive resources, your intellect and your brain to kind of rationalise and reason and look at the logic whilst also battling all of that more primal fear and anxiety that. Uh. Very hard, very hard. And I turned up to my first chemotherapy and I had my checklist, you know, I had my support person and I had my pink cardigan and I had my mandala cards to colour in and I had my music and I had a movie and um, I had my chemotherapy friendly food and I I thought, you know, I'm going to, I can do this, I know what to do to get through this. And then, of course, the wheels fell off immediately once the side effects started happening, which was like hours into the day. Um, and really I was, I just did not cope then probably until midway through um, chemotherapy. That was when I decided, oh yeah, I remember I'm a psychologist and there might be some things that might be useful here. And that's when the real cognitive um, strategies came on and um, and even, you know, I, mindfulness practice became my best friend to get through nausea so for half of it, I probably didn't cope at all. And then the second half, I, I'd like to think that there were some things that were quite useful um, to help get through, yeah. Mm. That, <laughs> that, that little description that you have there of when you're facing that intense nausea and you suddenly, it's like the little light bulb goes off to say, oh, hang on mindfulness you know and and I think you talk about listening was it listening to a song or there was a song came on the radio or a song popped into your head that took you back to a very mindful moment well I reckon the first time I'd ever like I'd been teaching mindfulness as we all had after our act training and probably I don't know maybe for a a few months even a year and then ended up at a, a Matchbox 20 concert Um, outside in the Hunter Valley at a vineyard and that night, and they're one of my favourite bands, and that night the heavens opened and it was just downpour. We were saturated. We were all out in the rain and the band came out in the rain with us and we all sang this song at the top of our lungs and I just remember that we all took our ponchos off. We had that feeling of the rain on our skin it was a balmy evening, the sounds of the song, the feel of being in that 
moment, truly in that moment. And I remember always going, this is what mindfulness is. This is me being mindfully present. And I, from then on, could tap into that feeling whenever I wanted. And so that was the light bulb that went off that day. I had been so desperately trying to find ways to cope with the nausea, which was unrelenting for five whole days. Um, And I just remember this day being so... I almost, well, I, I did want to give up. I just was lying there thinking, I can't, I can't do this again. And knowing that you were going to have to do it again and again and again. And you have to, you have to, yeah. So, like, what alternatives do you have? You know, everyone says to you, oh, you're so brave, you're so brave. There was nothing brave about that. You don't have an option unless you want to die, um, which felt like a pretty good option most of the time, let me tell you. So, yeah, that song popped into my head and then that was when the penny dropped. Oh, okay, well, maybe I could try it with this. Let's try that. And um, and I did and I, I just had the lightest reduction in the intensity of that nausea and it made all the difference. Mm. It was so good. Yeah. So you actually, and, and this is what struck me, and I know, I know because and it, it, it doesn't, it pales in comparison in terms of I think the physical experience, but I've practiced yoga for many years and I know one of the things when you're, you're being very mindful in a pose, which may be really uncomfortable, especially if you're doing yin yoga, you're holding these poses for quite a long time and you can be really uncomfortable and your brain starts to go, oh, you've got to move. You can't do this. This hurts. Don't do it. Stop doing it. Yeah. And, and realising that being mindful in that moment actually means accepting and almost immersing yourself in that pain and that's what you described with the nausea because and then I could make that connection I was like oh god Ah. I hate feeling nauseous but yeah you so you actually really almost felt the nausea more intensely in order to be able to cope with it is that how it felt yeah absolutely and it's that and I'm not an act therapist by any stretch of the imagination but it's that acceptance and willingness which and I I was doing the complete opposite all the other times I was struggling with it I was rejecting it I hated it I wanted it to stop and all I was doing was adding to my stress about it and obviously increasing the intensity of that so the minute I just objectified it and observed it and sat with it that was when I got the rewards so Mm. it was really valuable and there was a similar thing in terms of the acceptance around the whole cancer experience too so getting to a point of stopping fighting getting to the end talk us through that you'll do a much better job of describing it than I will yeah I I can't remember at what stage of the book I talk about that but I think definitely like because cancer and I something you said at the beginning made me think of this as well I can't remember what we were talking about but cancer wasn't supposed to happen to me Like we all have this belief that these bad things in life happen to everybody else or other people and we're there to help them through. Yeah, that's our role. And so I think, you know, I I felt like I'd done all this preparation. I'd done seven years of study and then my husband had cancer and, you know, surely that was enough. And then, bang, there I was facing my own. And I remember um, Dave, who is my ex-husband, He said to me at the beginning um, that he always felt like when he was diagnosed that you you take your life and you hand it over to your oncologist or whoever um, and you give it to them for a year and then you hope you get it back at the end. And I pretty well felt like that was the case for me as well. So I'd handed over my life and I think I just was in shock. And not necessarily, well, I certainly wasn't in denial once chemo started, but maybe a little bit before that. And then that, I guess, cognitive dissonance around, but this doesn't happen to me. Oh, but this is happening to me. Oh, who's that person in the mirror? Oh, that's Mm. me. Oh, that's right. Oh, because a lot of the time you still, obviously, you still feel like yourself. And I used to get shocked all the time walking past a window or a mirror or or seeing people react to me in a very strange way. But, of course, they were doing that, oh, poor cancer person (laughs) kind of thing. And so it it did shock me for a long time. And then um, at some point I had to recognise and accept that this is what was happening in my life um, and stop questioning, you know, why. Not, Not that I spent too much time with the why me, but I guess the denial of, 
that it was so significant and um, and that it was happening. Mm. So when I could, um, everything got a little bit more manageable, I think. Less of a struggle. Yeah, and I know when you were talking about others that you were still seeing and assisting because part of you're still working full-time pretty much throughout <laughs> this whole process. You're still working with other cancer patients and helping them to manage their experience while going through it yourself, which when I say that out loud sounds kind of bonkers, but <laughs> I can yeah. understand that. It was, well, while I was having active treatment, um, I was referred one family and the mum was a similar age to me, similar diagnosis, except she knew very soon, on, like soon into the piece that um, hers had metastasized. I wasn't necessarily working with her, but her children. Mm-hmm. But then in a way, she and I formed a peer relationship because we were on the same uh, chemo sort of cycles. And, you know, I'd see her in the waiting room before I would see her children. And there'd always be that brief, how'd you go with this cycle, you know, to and fro. And then her cancer progressed and mine went away and it was sort of a sliding doors kind of scenario um packed full of survivor guilt and it was yeah quite a confronting kind of experience to have she ultimately died um I think three years after her diagnosis and yeah so to see see how that could have gone Mm. And really, it's sheer luck, isn't it? Whether you get it or don't get it or die or don't die or, yeah. So I'm not sure. I can't remember what your question was. I don't <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> but that, that notion of luck kind of struck me too because there's, so you found out that you do carry the genetic mutation that makes breast cancer far more likely and also associated ovarian cancer. Mm, yes. And so you went, you and your sister and your dad went away and had the genetic counselling. Yes. Yes. We did. Yes. And that was to understand, well, at that stage you didn't know, so you found out that you had the mutation and then they wanted to find out as well whether yeah. or not they carried it. And we can't sort of talk about the results of, because some families still don't yep. want to know about that and they, they're choosing not to read the book. And I try to get them not to listen to these interviews and things but they <laughs> seem to like to listen to them for some reason. Yes, so that for me, I think it's one thing to have cancer and then find out you carry the BRCA mutation and it makes, actually it was, for me it was a relief because then I had a cause. Mm. Then I could understand why and then I didn't have to worry about was it something I did is there something I should stop doing? And a lot of the risk factors that related to me were around being childless and not having breastfed. And I wanted to have children. And so that was a very difficult pill to swallow. And so to find out, actually, there was always going to be a super, super highly likely Mm. that I would get breast cancer was a really good thing for me. But then to see my sister have to be confronted with the decision of if I, if she also was positive, which she wasn't, thank goodness, um, would she choose to have um, prophylactic surgery, you know, and cut off healthy body tissue breasts? I just couldn't even fathom what that must be like, that decision mm. to have to make. So luckily she didn't have to make it. But, yeah, it was quite an, uh, a harrowing experience for our family and and my mum is one of those anxious people who did not want to know. And so she didn't get tested, just my dad did. So, yeah, but but also a beautiful, not beautiful, but I don't know, just one of those opportunities where you as a family and your bond is just so solid and um, something that can never be, you know, I don't know, you go through something like that together and it really gets tested and, um and for us, it was a really positive thing. Mm. And you mentioned that connection has been something that helped you enormously and something that you're passionate about 
as a psychologist. And I know that really came through very strongly for me in the book, in part because within the text you have these lovely vignettes which are letters to your nan who had passed away already several years prior to this point. Mm. Was, this, was this a journal that you were keeping at the time and you, you sort of wrote yeah. it in the form of these letters? Yeah, absolutely. So she and I were super close. Um, she was always my confidant. She would have been the person I would have leaned on the most had she been around. Um, I had moved back from New South Wales to our hometown where she had lived and everything reminded me of her. And I'd been given this beautiful journal as a gift um, and I started writing letters to her. Um, and that was my way of sort of processing, you know, the day-to-day -day ins and outs of what was happening in my life. And once um, active, and it was really helpful actually to me, and at the end of active treatment and I was no longer writing as much, I really missed the writing process and um, joined a writing class online and was in there for three years. And the book sort of evolved from from that and from those letters. And so it made sense to me that their actual excerpts, I guess, from the letters word for word mm. that I wrote to her and, and just it, she's so important to me. You know, I'm, I don't know if my genetic stuff came from her, but I come from her and it just, yeah, I, I love those parts of the story and they were a nice way like the, the journal writing, the letter writing to her did allow me to feel connected to her. It allowed me to tap into memories very clearly um, where I felt like I knew what she would say and I knew what she would do to make me or help me feel better. And um, it was a really, really powerful coping tool for me. Mm, therapeutic. Well, we know that there's lots of benefits in, you know, therapeutic benefits in writing things down, but it was that for me that connection to her and you know as the reader getting that little bit of insight into what was going on in your mind in a way that was less narration and more personal if that makes sense yeah yeah and somebody asked me at one of the author talks I did recently um what would she have said about the book <laughs> and I said she would have said that I swear too much <laughs> She would have said that I should not talk about my vagina so openly to strangers. <laughs> and um, she would have probably had trouble verbalising that she was proud, but I know that she would have been. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. Which is lovely. Mm. And there's lots of other stories of connection in there. I mean, all the way through, you just have this wonderful network of supporters, family, friends. Well, I think the part that made me tear up when I was reading it was actually you had friends coming down from New South Wales and you really wanted your sister and brother-in-law to put them up. Oh, yeah. At, yeah. at their place because you were living with your parents, you know, there was no way and, and you wanted it to be easy for friends to come and stay, but they sort of hadn't offered and you were feeling frustrated and, and you had this conversation with your sister. But then your brother-in-law approached you. What, what was it that he said or did? Well, so... Um, Andy had lost his dad to prostate cancer years earlier and he and his father had the kind of relationship that I had with my grandmother and he came around the night I'd spoken to my sister in tears um, just saying, makes me a bit emotional thinking about it actually, but just saying how um, that they had been in denial, they hadn't wanted to accept that I could die and that he loved me as much as he loved his dad and then of course they would let my friends stay and, and everything changed from that point it mm. was really beautiful but denial is such a massive um coping tool isn't it and an effective one I guess <laughs> but not always the most um helpful mm. so yeah that was a big that was big yeah, and that, that, I think that was, for me, it was, I think, realising that, and maybe it's because as soon as you read, you start to reflect on your own experience and your own family and who you have and who your support networks are and how they'd respond. And, you know, so it, it really that kind of welled up the tears for me, oh. having seen that connection played out in such a, you know, not an over-the-top way, a really simple but incredibly endearing 
way. So all of those connections, how has that helped you now as a psychologist having that kind of deeper? I mean, we know logically, we know from all that training that, you know, human connection and social support is really important, but you've experienced that at a different level from a really different perspective. How has that helped you as as a psych? Well, it's certainly something that I check in on with everybody at their first appointment and um, in their initial assessment, but also throughout their sessions, depending if they're accessing that social support. Social support and quality of social support was one of the big aspects of my doctoral thesis as well. And so I was always um, acutely aware of how that was probably the single most important coping tool I needed, good quality not quantity, social support. And I think that it wasn't intentional that the book shows that so well, but it's my life and that's and well before cancer, that's how I cultivated my support network. I have I'm so lucky to have lived in many different locations, but to have formed very, very deep connections um, in each of those locations and maintained a lot of those friendships. So it is something that I really, really, I guess, focus on in therapy with with all of my clients. And I see it, I'm working two days a week now in a secondary college. And and also, you know, when you couple that with um, this developmental stage that adolescents are in and the importance of that sense of belonging and connection, it's something I focus on even more now. And it never, will it, you know, it never ceases to amaze me that the minute somebody can feel less alone, less isolated with something that they're going through, the miraculous healing that comes from sharing, having a shared experience. And that's the beauty of, you know, things like yoga classes and, you know, to share something on such a spiritual level with other people is just so healing and therapeutic. Mm. And you had those opportunities with family and friends, but you also, I mean, you had opportunities for tears, but also opportunities for lots of laughter. Oh, yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. Always laughter, always black humour. And, yeah, and, and that's something that, you know, when I was learning about psycho-oncology, you know, humour was always up there with the top, you know, coping tools. And, and it's so true. And if we can laugh at ourselves, it makes life so much easier. Absolutely. Mm. So what have you learned about resilience? We sort of touched on this a little earlier, but, you know, this, and again, I can't, I mean, people will have to read the book to really appreciate the level because there's other stuff going on in your life at the time as well, the the breakdown of your marriage, coming to terms with your, your fertility, all of these sorts of things that are just layer upon layer on top of everything else. And it's a, a test beyond my imagination really of, your resilience, but you do keep your sense of humour and you do maintain your relationships and you do maintain your mental health. So what have you learned about yourself in terms of your resilience? I Well, I have learned that I am resilient, that I am stronger than I ever knew. And, I, and bravery and strength don't mean that you are always able to show up and be fearless. I really learned that what it means is that you feel that fear and you show up time and time again and that I really learned um, that when I thought I had nothing left, um, I found it from somewhere and that there obviously there was nothing that was too much for me to handle. No matter what got thrown at me, um, I was able to stand up again and again and again and it didn't matter how long I stayed down for and it didn't matter that I felt completely vulnerable and afraid. But what mattered was that I did front up to face whatever the new stressor or challenge was, and there were so many. Um, But I I really think that survival instinct in us is very strong. I think as a species we are very resilient and that is what I love. And I think that's what got me into psychology in the first place. Like um, it's just so fascinating to me and uh, you know, I, I don't know, I'm just so proud of all of us <laughs> that we have that in us. It's a weird thing to say, but um, I, I really enjoy. I'm reading Sapiens at the moment. Have you read that? I haven't. Yeah. Read. Oh, my gosh. Um, I, I'm only like two chapters in and I have to, I read like two pages at a time and I have to put it down because it requires like four weeks of thinking about <laughs> before <laughs> you can move on. But um, it's it's a 
a brief history of humankind and he just takes us right back to that real primal level of where we came from and why today we still have these hang-ups um, and fears and, and that we do, but how how our particular um, species, Homo sapiens, came to survive when the other three kinds didn't. Mm-hmm. And, oh, it's so, it's, I, just, I just love all of it. I just I love, yeah, human-to-human human stuff for me it just really drives me, I think. So a heap of learning and, and what... Even, I mean, we talk about all those tests and the stresses that you had to face and that you you did keep showing up. And sometimes that was as simple as just getting out of bed, wasn't it? Mm, yeah, for sure. Yep, so, absolutely. Sometimes that was the hardest thing to do, to get out of bed. Yeah. And just start yep. the day. Just, yep, exactly. Yeah. Mm. Jodie, tips for people who are perhaps starting a cancer journey or starting supporting somebody who's who's been had a recent diagnosis what we're going to put all of these in the show notes but you know can you just talk us through what are the things for any of our listeners who might be facing some really scary stuff right now what are the things that they can do to help and support someone um so to help and support somebody i think um people ask this question uh, all the time it's a really great question because i think a lot of people fall into the trap of I don't know what to say and so I say nothing or this is so confronting I'm, you know, afraid of upsetting the person so I'll avoid them at all costs. But for the person with the cancer, they just see the absence of the person they thought would come and support them. It's a far, far better thing to turn up and say I don't know what to say than to disappear on someone. It's also a much better thing to say, oh, my God, this must suck completely. Emphasise with them. Not too hard to put yourself in somebody's shoes when they've been diagnosed with cancer to realise that must be a really hard, awful thing. Um, And to try to meet them on that level and empathise with them. And I think one of the things that probably, I don't know that I experience this too much, but you get people who offer, let me know, let me know if I can do anything Mm. for you. Well, do you know what? Probably take that decision out of the person with cancer's hands and just show up and go, where's your ironing basket? Here's a casserole. Um, I bought you some potato chips. I thought you might be feeling a bit nauseous. Um, Here's a new, here's a box set of DVDs. Thought you might want to watch these. Um, or let's go for a walk. Let's get you out of the house. Just show up. I think I'm also not, one of my best friends was just so good. We had a walking date every Sunday and we rarely talked about cancer. I just got to be normal Jody, and that was a really valuable thing and that's probably why I worked through chemo as well. I needed something in my life to have not changed mm. um, and I needed to have a meaning and I needed to have purpose. And I needed to feel like I was still contributing to the world. So uh, they'd be my big tips yep. for someone caring with someone for someone with cancer. If someone's been diagnosed with cancer, um, I think number one, I'd say expect all the feels. Like it's really normal. Um, more often than not, I'm talking to people about how normal their emotional responses are. So normal responses to an abnormal situation um, rather than them feeling like there's something wrong with them or that they're going quote unquote crazy. It's just, it's a bit of a roller coaster and there's loads of grief and loss and, um, and everything else as well. Um, but that to sort of just try to go one step at a time, not when you look at a whole year of treatment, that's very overwhelming. Whereas if you just look from one appointment to the next it makes it a lot more doable um, to get through. Use your social network, like keep them around you because it's super important. Mm. And so now, without giving too much away, you know, you you are living life cancer-free. Sure am. (laughs) (laughs) So you're fully, I don't know, is recovered the term? I don't know. Yep. And movie you know you're working but you're, you're no longer working in psycho-oncology what are you doing now not really um well I live in Warrnambool 
you and we have a, a lack of um, psychologists in our town, so you can't really afford to specialise here. You need to be fairly generalist. I still am involved. We have a beautiful survivorship um, program that runs quarterly through our, our base hospital. So I run the psychology sessions in those um, and I love that. That's such a rewarding thing to do. Um, I get the odd uh, assessment for people with the BRCA mutations who are choosing to have prophylactic surgeries and I get the odd uh, referral with somebody who has been diagnosed with cancer. Um, so I, I'm keeping my hand in that area um, but it's not my all day, every day work. Um, I work two days in the secondary college. I work two days in a private hospital, St John's, and one day in private practice. So there's a bit of variety, which I love. But what I also love is that a lot of the cancer, the psycho-oncology stuff just relates to, well, any sort of chronic illness, but also just life mm. <laughs> and adversity. And everyone that walks through our door is facing some sort of adversity. And so those tools come in super handy. Mm. And when I'm able to sort of try to teach somebody um, the, the power of mindfulness, for example, and, and I'm able to say, this is when I use that in my life, um, I feel like it it motivates them a little bit more to go, oh, okay, um, so if it can be used in such a thing, then maybe that can be useful for my life as well. Sharing those experiences to help others. And I think, you know, I, I, for anybody who, you know, as I said, it is a, a strangely a very delightful book to read, <laughs> even though it is, you know, such a, a difficult, seemingly difficult topic, but you do bring all of that to life all of that, that, whether it's the mindfulness or the social connection or the resilience or the perspective taking or the humour, any of those sort of coping mechanisms that we've spoken about, without it, it's not a textbook, it's a story, it's, it's yeah. your life and that experience of those things and, and how it got you through just written in this engaging, easy to read tale. Well, and that's the whole idea. It's you know, if one person can take one little thing from it and that helps them in some way, shape or form, then I've done my job. And that was the whole purpose of actually getting the book out there. I sort of, it's a little bit of a hybrid memoir slash, I don't know, the intention was to help others. It's not a self-help book, but I describe some of those coping tools um, in very step-by-step -step sort of way so that anyone could employ them mm. if they felt like they would be useful to them. No, I, I I think it does that really, really well and very easy to read. I, I got through it in a couple of days. So for our listeners, it's called A Hole in My Jeans, G-E-N-E-S, um, a memoir by Dr Jodie Fleming. It is available through? Well, all the major online um, bookstores. Yep. Uh, if you go to your local bookstore and ask them to get it in, they'll be able to order it from the distributor it's not hard to get. It's not hard to <laughs> get. And I, I have, well, I kindly have a hard copy that Jodie sent me, but I also did prior to that, I bought an online copy, e-book e copy, Kindle type thing. Um, so, yes, I can vouch for the fact that it's very readily available. The other thing that you have coming up, Jodie, is a retreat, Conscious oh, yeah, Living retreat, retreat. Yes. in May yes. of this year in Bali. Can you just really quickly tell us a little bit about that because that may be something that interests our listeners as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, oh, well, last year I went on my own retreat after experiencing a little bit of burnout from work and I had to do a lot of work for myself to figure out how I was going to sustain this career in psychology and um, I read a book called The Desire Map and I tell everyone about it because I just love it. It changed my life. But it, it asks you to sort of explore how do you want to feel in your life and it takes you through this process of figuring that out. And at the end of that, I came up with my four core desired feelings, which were to feel connected, to feel as though I was flourishing, to feel serene and also to feel purposeful. And so from that, um, I was you know, figuring out, well, how can I do that? And the book, which had sat dormant for about three years, came back up. So I knew I had to do something with that because it was a really powerful way of helping others and connecting quickly with a lot of people. And then the retreat was another way that I was able to sort of 
I guess it's sort of like group therapy. This is a wellness holiday. There's yoga, daily yoga involved in it, but also my version. Sorry, that's my dog knocking at the door. <laughs> that's okay. Oh, how annoying. He'll keep doing that. Um, uh, so my version of, of how to get people out of their heads, get them back into their lives, but living those um, really feeling-based values. Oh, sorry, is that really annoying? No, it's, it's fine. <laughs> well, it, yeah, so my I've got daily workshops every day of the retreat, but it also um, there's a lot of uh, holiday time and downtime, and it's really for people to take that time out of their lives so they can um, do a, a quality of life checkup, really, um, and hopefully feel my, quite motivated by the time they leave us to go and put some changes into place for their own lives. So I'm so excited for that. It sounds wonderful. So it's in May of this year. Yeah, May fourth in- till tenth in 4th. Bali, mm-hmm. in Changu and Ubud. We're in two locations, and it's just about nourishing their bodies and their minds and their souls while we're all together having this um this joint experience. There's the social connection. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It sounds glorious, and we will put a link to that in the show notes for the episode so that people can find out more. Um, I'll also put a link to a couple of those books that you mentioned, so The Desire Map and oh, yeah. Sapiens. Sapiens, um, definitely. And your Irving book, stuff, obviously. most people won't want to read about that. Oh, and my book, yes, yes. please. <laughs> please buy my book. <laughs> and also your, so your, you have a website. It's The Psychology of It. Yeah, yeah. That, um, that came about through missing the writing process and having this desire to be sharing, you know, human experiences and to helping others feel less isolated with their own experiences. Um, And so, yeah, the website came about, uh, well, three years ago now and um, I'm just working on a new website which is just dedicated to the writing and my book slash future books. It's just called drjodyfleming.com.au, but that's under construction at the moment. Okay. And that, that'll be your author website. Yes. <laughs> Jody, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your story today. I, um, you know, as I said, I really enjoyed the book. I've learned so much. Even as a psychologist, I feel like I've learned so much from mm. reading it. So I encourage anybody who, as you say, you know, it doesn't have to be about cancer doesn't have to be, it's just, it's about life. It is about being resilient. It's about showing up. It's about coping with difficulties. It's about connection. It's about all the things that we've spoken about today. So, you know, I really appreciate that you put it out there because as someone who has written in the past and does write, I know that that's a big endeavour. <laughs> Merci. <laughs> so, you know, excellent big tick for you for getting that part done. Best of luck with the retreat because that also sounds glorious thank you there are a couple of spots left and um and there'll be another one in the works for next year so fabulous sounds great thank you so much for the opportunity to come and talk to you um it's helped me to discover your podcast which I've been listening to and um while I'm making dinner and making beds and all sorts of things and it's um it's really informative and I've been really enjoying it so I'm I'm so happy to be a part of it now thank you I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Jodie Fleming as much as I did. And Jodie had very kindly offered a 50% discount on her book, A Hole in My Jeans, to you and to all of our fabulous podcast listeners. There is a coupon code, which is B for Bravo, M for Mike, 3 5C for Charlie. And you can enter that code at the Smash Words website, which is smashwords.com. And you'll get 50% off the price of Jodie's book, which is just lovely of her. And that code expires on June 30th this year, 2019. And of course, we'll put all of those details in the episode page for this episode on the Potential Psychology website, because I know you probably can't write them down right now if you are driving or walking the dog, or running, or doing anything else that we often do while we're listening to podcasts. 
We've also put the links to Jodie's website, her social media channels, and her tips for how to help someone with a cancer diagnosis in the show notes for this episode. And you can find all of that, including that code and where to purchase Jodie's book at potential.com.au forward slash podcast. Of course, while you're there, I would love it if you could give us a rating or review in iTunes to make it easier for our podcast to be found. And of course, that means that more people are hearing from our experts and we are, as a community, helping more people to thrive. There's a link that takes you straight to iTunes in the episode page, so it's super simple to do. And as I've said before, I do read and appreciate every review that we receive. So thank you. What's in store for next week? Well, we are continuing with our loose theme of examining well-being within different professions by talking to Dr. Rebecca Hoffman about her research into stress and burnout in junior doctors here in Australia. And Rebecca will be sharing her personal story as well as taking us through the factors that she's uncovered that contribute to a large percentage of our junior doctors not only struggling at times, but also some are burning out and leaving the profession really before they even begin. Here's Rebecca to tell you a little bit more. Up to 47% of junior doctors had experienced symptoms of burnout. Lots of them acknowledged in hindsight. So the main ones are going to be things like not looking after yourself, depersonalising yourself from the situations that you're in, and then things like risky alcohol use or other drug use not doing your regular self-care activities. They're also different in lots of different people. So then we're talking about things that could possibly be anxiety symptoms. That is next week in episode 43 of the Potential Psychology Podcast. As always, thanks so much for listening. I really enjoy sharing these stories with you. Let me know what you've enjoyed perhaps today. I would love to hear from you. You can drop me a line at any time at ellenjackson at potential.com.au. But in the meantime, go forth and thrive and flourish. And I look forward to seeing you next week.